0: Last week we saw how God intended to show the world how things could be under his rule. He intended to establish his kingdom in Israel and from it to extend his blessings to all the nations of the earth. But even Israel didn't fully trust God or submit to his rule. At the request of the leading men of the tribes of Israel, God gave the nation its first king, Saul. Saul. He was to rule under God's authority and in accordance with God's laws. But Saul's heart wasn't fully committed to the Lord. He went his own way and became further and further alienated from God, and his life got further and further out of control. At first, he had good excuses for his bad choices. But as time went on, he didn't even try to justify his behavior. And his life ended in... Chaos and conflict. But God, who always remember is no quitter, raised up another man to take his place, a man after his own heart. He chose a young man named David, whose heart was fully committed to the Lord, and through him, he previewed the kingdom of God to the rest of the world. David was Israel's greatest king. Through him, God brought peace to the nation. He made David's enemies, as the proverb says. Live at peace with him. It's hard to overestimate how important David was to God's plans for his kingdom on earth. Consider this. David's name appears in Scripture more often than the names of any other persons excepting the name of Jesus and of God himself. His name appears about the same number of times as the names of the other two great Old Testament heroes, Moses and Abraham, combined. And consider this, we pray in Jesus' name. We say, for the sake of your son Jesus, and we make our request. But in the Old Testament, we have someone praying in David's name. For the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. And God, at least 13 times, says that he will be gracious to Israel for the sake of David. In David, God gave Israel a preview of what he intended for the world. And God gave something else. He gave his promise to establish the kingdom through David's seed, his offspring, forever. Not a preview of the kingdom, but the real thing, the kingdom come. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and in 1 Chronicles 17. In the 1 Chronicles passage, God tells David, I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. And then he goes on to promise, I will build, the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Now, like other prophetic words, this one was fulfilled in stages. I should say, it's being fulfilled in stages. David's son Solomon succeeded him and built a temple, a house for God's name, and in so doing fulfilled part of this prophecy. But the throne of his kingdom was not established forever. Though he started off well, Solomon didn't end well. In fact, as time passed, he did all the things God insisted, Deuteronomy 17, remember, insisted that his kings not do. God said, don't have many horses. Solomon built stables with 4,000 horse stalls and bought 12,000 horses and brought them into the kingdom. God said, don't hoard silver and gold. 1 Kings 10.21 says, All Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon was pure gold. He com- in one place in the Old Testament, we read that they didn't use silver too much because in Solomon's time, it wasn't worth that much because everything was gold. Solomon commissioned a fleet of trading ships to travel the seas in search of treasure, and once every three years, they would all return loaded down with gold and with silver. God said that a king, his king, must not take many wives. Solomon took hundreds of them. There were so many he couldn't possibly have known the name of all of them. God wanted to show the world what he could do in a person whose heart was fully his. But 1 Kings 11:4 says, As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And then verse 9 the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. The kingdom preview <clears throat> that featured David had been just that, a preview. It didn't last. The Old Testament books of kings, there are two of them, are records of the occasional successes and the frequent failures of David's descendants to rule as God's regents to find their security in him and his guidance, their guidance in his word. In the end, the men of David's line betrayed the vision of kingdom come. They made the same mistake Adam and Eve made, the same mistake Israel had made in Samuel's time. Or, say rather, they committed the same sins. They didn't trust God with their security, and instead of relying on his word for their guidance, they rejected what he said to them. Eventually, the kings of David's line were deposed, and the people of Israel, including David's descendants, were exiled and sent into captivity. The idea that the chosen people could be defeated and sent into exile had been unimaginable to the people of Israel. They didn't believe that God would let them, the covenant people, be defeated. They argued that God would never let the temple in Jerusalem, his dwelling place, be destroyed. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about American exceptionalism, but long before there was an America, there was a lot of talk about Jewish exceptionalism. Israel thought itself exempt from defeat because they were the people of God. They assumed that God would make an exception for them, for their distrust and their disobedience, because they held such a central place in his plans. And they were wrong. And when we think the same way about America, we're wrong. In 597 B.C., King Jehoiakim, who was a direct descendant of David, was paying tribute to Babylon. It was humiliating. He was forced to pay them tribute. But when Babylon went to war against the other regional powerhouse of the time, Egypt, Jehoiakim saw his chance to get out from under that tribute, and he rebelled. That Babylon defeated Egypt, and then they turned their attention to Israel. And the wrath of Babylon came on him. And Jehoiakim was assassinated. His son, Jehoiakim, took the throne for three months and ten days. The city was surrounded by troops, not largely Babylonian troops, but troops of their vassal states around Israel. And the young king was forced to surrender himself for deportation to Babylon. Babylon then installed his uncle Zedekiah. His uncle was only 21 years old. Installed his uncle on the throne, but he too rebelled in a few years. And this time, the Babylonian army itself came and they came in force. And they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And in the summer of 587, the city's food supplies ran out. At about the same time, the Babylonian army breached the walls. The city, the temple, the place that Jews thought could never fall was torn down stone by stone. It was the darkest day in Israel's history. Of the four things that gave Israel her identity, the law or Torah, the land, the temple, and the king, she lost three of them, the land, the temple, and the king, all on the same day, and was pressured to give up the fourth, the law. Israel was in shock the unthinkable had happened. You'll get the feel of the time by reading the Psalms of Lament or the Lamentations of Jeremiah. And In Psalm 74, the writer asked God, why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the people you purchased of old, the te- tribe of your inheritance, whom you redeemed, Mount Zion, where you dwelt? Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling, that is in the temple, with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we'll crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We're given no miraculous signs. No prophets are left. None of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment. In other words, God, why are you sitting on your hands? Do something. Or consider this from Psalm 80. O Lord God Almighty, how long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You've fed them with the bread of tears. You've made them drink tears by the bowlful. You've made us a source of contention to our neighbors and our enemies mock us. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes, boars from the forest, ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it? Not to belabor the point, this is from Lamentations 1. After affliction and harsh labor, Judas gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed feasts. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her maidens grieve, and she's in bitter anguish. The northern part of Israel had gone into captivity to Assyria years before, but the Assyrians had brought their own people or people they had conquered into the land. But in Judah, the land remained desolate for many years. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile Captive before the foe. Can you feel the despair? Everything had gone wrong. Everything they knew had been thrown out. Nothing was right. And how could it ever be right again? And where was God? What had happened to his promise of a king and a kingdom? Was he paying attention? Was he even there? In Ezekiel, Ezekiel is the prophet of the exile. He wrote from Babylon. In Ezekiel, we read that people were saying, the Lord's forsaken the land. The Lord doesn't see. Now, don't we feel that way sometimes? Why is God sitting on his hands doing nothing while our marriage is falling apart or our loved one's life is slipping away? A job is lost. The bills are piling up. A child is angrily pursuing self-destruction. And where's God? Why doesn't he act? But you must remember, and seriously, you must remember, God is no quitter. He is faithful to all his promises, including this promise that the offspring or seed of David would reign forever. But how? The line of David's been deposed and killed. There was no longer even a kingdom for a future king to rule. The temple... The place of God's dwelling was burned and razed. There was nothing left. The walls of Jerusalem were gone. The city was a haunt of jackals. You could walk through Jerusalem or even walk up and down the entire country looking for a sign of hope and never find one. It was a nightmare from which there was no waking. But if you put in one column all the reasons that something can't be done, You list them until your pencil runs out of lead. And in the other column, write only one line. God is faithful. Guess which one outweighs the other. I said if you walked up and down the land looking for some sign of hope in Israel, you wouldn't find it. But the land of Israel was not the place to look. See, God is bigger than the land of Israel, or America for that matter. And our hope lies with him. I mentioned that David's line had been deposed and decimated. But if you read the count of the fall of Jerusalem, begin with Jehoiakim at the end of Second Kings, and read down through the, the reign of Zedekiah and his fall, you will read the story of that young king Jehoiakim, just 18 years old, barely ascended to the throne three months and ten days before he was deposed. His father, the king, had already been killed. His uncle, who succeeded him, was also killed. But Jehoiakim was exiled to a foreign land where he was confined for 37 years and finally released. It was in that land that his children were born and grew up. And after 70 years, his children's children returned to Israel. Now remember, God is no quitter. 70 years after the unimaginable, unthinkable disaster, a remnant of people returned to Jerusalem. Years later, a second temple was built. The Torah, which had almost been forgotten, was again cherished and its laws studied and followed. Among that small group of people, all the things that gave Israel her identity were back the Torah, the land, the temple all except the king how could there be a kingdom without a king but the king's line had survived and been kept hidden for safekeeping perhaps in a foreign land in the midst of unprecedented death and destruction god was quietly at work bringing good pursuing his plan who could have guessed for that matter Who could guess what God is doing in the darkest times in your life or mine? The one thing you can be sure of is that he's doing more than you ever imagined. If you're right now going through something terrible, sickness, divorce, foreclosure, relationship turmoil, grab hold of this. God is at work in and around you bringing good, pursuing his plan. If you can't see that, it may be that you're so fixated on your plans that you're blind to his. The way to move forward is not by pleading with God to get behind your plans, but to commit to his plan and ask him to show you how to cooperate with him in realizing it. I think that's, that fixation is the single most common reason people don't see God at work in their lives. Among the best things God did during the time of the exile was to free Israel from her besetting sin. In her long history, Israel had repeatedly been drawn into idolatry. She had been beguiled by the idea that there's some kind of shortcut to happiness and fulfillment. Time after time after time, she gave into the temptation to adopt her neighbor's practices. They always seemed to have things better than she did. If she just joined them, then maybe things would work out for her too. So again and again, Israel turned away from God and turned to trust in some other power. It was their besetting sin. But after the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile to Babylon, idolatry all but disappeared in Israel. When it raised its head again during the time between the Old and New Testaments, which is a fascinating story, Israel didn't give in, but fought like a tiger to defeat it. When we come to the gospel accounts, there's not a single mention of idols. The scriptures never record Jesus even using the word. Now let me remind you of the biblical story we've been exploring. When God created the world by the power of his word, He was doing more than making physical matter. He was building a kingdom. That's foundational and very important to understand. Our first parents were to be the king and queen of that kingdom under God, but they turned from God and tried to rule without being ruled, and the kingdom was shaken. But God chose a man, Abraham, and a nation, Israel, in which to plant his kingdom and from which to extend it to the world. But Israel followed the same path our first parents followed. So God called a man, David, to preview the kingdom. Israel experienced its golden age under David. But in subsequent generations, Israel's kings rejected God's authority. The books of the kings tell the story. And then the unthinkable happened. The kingdom was crushed. There was no king to rule and no kingdom to be ruled. Israel was demolished. Jerusalem was reduced to rubble. The people were sent into exile. But in the midst of the chaos and destruction, there were voices of hope. God, they said, had not given up on his kingdom plans. Even before the exile, the prophet wrote, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. It is from the line of David. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. That same prophet wrote, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. From the exile, the prophet Ezekiel wrote that the formerly divided kingdom of Israel would be reunited and that God would place over them one shepherd, who? My servant David, and he will tend them, he will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. From the land of the exile, the land of hopelessness and despair, the prophet Daniel foresaw a vision of a son of man who was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all peoples, nations, and men of every language who worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. All of this is coming together as we come to Christmas, as you're going to see. When the Old Testament period ended, there was a remnant of Israelites who had returned from captivity. Life was hard for them. Their situation was precarious, but they'd regained those things that gave them their identity. They were in the land. They had the law. They had a temple. And while they didn't have a king, they had a promise, and on it they set their hope. Even in the midst of deprivation and humiliation, God's promises gave them hope because they had seen what God had done in giving them back the law, the land, and the temple. They dared to hope for what God would do and give them a king. By the time the New Testament opens, so now we're in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. By the time the New Testament opens, some people had lost hope. Hundreds of years have gone by. Some have lost hope. Others have lost themselves in the search for prosperity. Still others were trying to lose themselves in distractions, both religious and secular. But there were some who were waiting for God to fulfill his promise. We know the names of many of them. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Mary, Joseph, Simon, Anna, these and many like them were keeping watch. They were looking for that shoot from the stump of Jesse, for the new David, the son of David, to come. They were waiting for the king. Now, next week we get to Luke, and we see where this is going. But what can we learn from this? Let me suggest three things. We can learn that if we put off trusting God until we understand him, we will never trust him. If we put off trusting God until we understand him, we will never trust him. Could anyone in the despair and darkness of the exile, it is unimaginable to us, could anyone have understood that by sending Israel's young king into exile and captivity, God was protecting Israel the line of David and the future of kingdom come. No. Yet if you read Matthew 1, you'll find a man named Jeconiah in the genealogy of Jesus. Jeconiah is an alternate form of the name Jehoiakim. That 18-year-old king who was imprisoned for 37 years and then released. Even in the darkness, God was at work. He was bringing good. He was fulfilling his plan. And he's doing the same thing in the dark times of our lives. We learn here that the word of God ignites hope. God sent his word by the prophets into the midst of darkness. And he still does that. And if we'll listen to his word, our hopes will be renewed. I have often been surprised and frankly disappointed to find Christian people on the verge of despair who have all but lost hope and yet refuse to listen to what God has to say to them through the scriptures. If you only listen to the voice in your head as it recites that endless litany of despair, you will lose hope. But if you will listen to God speak his word to you, it will become a light to guide you, and it will grow brighter and brighter. You ever been in a place so dark that you couldn't see what was right in front of you? You moved gingerly. You stepped ever so carefully, afraid that you're going to run into something and hurt yourself. Or you lost your bearings, and you didn't even know which way to go. Then as you scanned the darkness, you saw a light. As your eyes adjusted, you saw a light. Maybe just a pinprick of light. But it changed everything. It gave you back your bearings. Gave you confidence to move forward. God's word is like that light in our lives. What a precious gift it is. What a rich resource. If you ignore it, you ignore it to your own detriment. One last thing. And this is especially for you if you're here this morning and you're losing hope. Go ahead, list all those things in that litany of despair. List them all. All the things that are wrong and painful, all the problems that are insoluble in your life in one column on a sheet of paper. List them until your pencil runs out of lead. And then in that other column, write God is faithful know this his faithfulness is weightier than all those things you listed he will bring good and work his plan nothing can stop him you say but i don't see how he can do it of course you don't but then you don't need to just trust him And make sure that you're part of his plan. Give up on the idea that you can get him to do what you want. Really, he loves you too much for that. And tell him that you will do what he wants. Don't try to make him part of your story. Tell him that you want to be part of his. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this. I ask you, as part of your story in our lives, that as these next weeks come and we reach Christmas, that you will give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Help us to see how all of this fits and where we fit into it. I pray you'll do this in Jesus' name. Amen.